0: Turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Acts chapter 8. We're slowly but surely making our way through the book of Acts. And this morning we're looking at the first eight verses together. And, and I want to begin with asking you to, to imagine something. It's a, a somber topic. I'm a topic I think most all of us will be able to identify with. And may, maybe, maybe you've felt or thought something similar. I want you to imagine that a loved one of yours has passed away. A family member, a friend, someone close to you has has died, and you've attended their funeral. You've paid your respects. After the service, you stand up and you walk out of the church, down the steps, and you stand on a sidewalk and you have this moment where it's almost like the world slows down and you stop and you're just aware of your surroundings it's an introspective moment and you you see things that ordinarily you would have just missed for example you see a school across the road and at this school there's a playground and on the playground there are children sliding and playing and you can hear them screaming and laughing You can see teachers standing beside them, chaperoning, um, talking with one another. On the other side of the school, there's, there's sports fields, and you see coaches and players carrying bags of equipment going out to those fields to play and practice. Right in front of you, there's a road, and on this road are cars driving back and forth, going to all different places. There are birds flying above you in the air, Chirping in the trees, people surrounding you on the sidewalk, spreading, going and getting in their cars and dispersing. You see all of this, and you're struck by the fact that life doesn't stop when someone dies, it keeps on going. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. I, I, I've I've felt this at the, my grandmother's funeral. Not this exact thing, but something something very similar. It's it's realizing this this incredibly humbling reality that when you die, there will be, Lord willing, some people who are close to you and love you, and they'll take time out of their day and their normal schedule to attend your service. But when it's over they'll go back to their own busy lives. And it doesn't matter how important you are or how wealthy or influential or beloved you were. When you die, the world just keeps on going. After the funeral service, there will be someone like me who will walk in and cut off the lights and lock the doors. After the graveside service, after the family has put those roses onto the coffin and walked away, that they will get in their car, drive out of the cemetery, and go get something to eat. Life doesn't stop when you die. It keeps on going. I find this a bit unnerving because it means that I'm not the center of the universe. It means it makes me feel small and unimportant. You know, you can of course experience this in a job where you're working in a job and you think you're really doing something and then you can leave and go somewhere else and hey, they just hire someone else to fill your spot and they just keep right on going. Reminds me of Psalm 103. 103 which says our days on earth are like grass. Like wildflowers, we bloom and die. The wind blows and we are gone as though we had never been here. That's the picture I'm seeing in my mind, that our days on earth are like grass. Like wildflowers, we bloom and die and life just keeps going. And if... And if we are really that temporary. It makes you think really hard about what lasts. What is eternal? What kind of legacy can we leave? What, what can we hold to? I was reminded of a line from a poem written by C.T. Studd. Now, I, it's not my habit of reading poetry, but I know of this because John Piper and probably his most famous Passion Sermon back in the year 2000. He, he preached a sermon that had this line, and it's one that's repeated at the end of each stanza probably 14 times. Listen to this line. C.T. Studd writes, Only one life, t'will soon be passed; Only what's done for Christ will last. I'll repeat that. Only one life, t'will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That is a simple yet profound truth that we like grass and wildflower flowers will bloom and die and the world just keeps on going. But what is done for Christ will last. This morning in Acts chapter 8, we are immediately following the death of Stephen the first martyr of the church. We saw his death last week. And we have seen in this account of Stephen that he was an evangelist for a very short time, maybe only a few months. And we have really chapters 6 and chapter 7 where we see the life of Stephen. S- Stephen's story, is, it's like a shining star that blazes brilliantly in the night sky, and then in a moment, goes out. Stephen is killed in gruesome fashion. He is pummeled with rocks until he succumbs to his injuries. His executioners then leave his body, lying there exposed to be scavenged by animals and carrion. And anyone standing by watching all of this might think, what a waste this bright up-and-comer in the early church, this evangelist who was so promising is now gone, and life just keeps on going. But remember C.T. Studd's words, only one life will soon be past, only what's done for Christ will last. We're going to see how those words were true concerning Stephen this faithful disciple of the Lord Jesus. We're going to see the fruit produced by his witness. But let's pray first. Father God, without you and without your spirit, nothing profitable can happen here. Father, I can read these words, but unless your spirit works... Unless your spirit marks them on our hearts and gives us ears to see and and softens our conscience, we'll hear nothing. Father, would you be with us during this time? Bless your people by the proclamation of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles devout men buried stephen and made great lamentation over him but saul was ravaging the church and entering house After house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out with a loud voice, unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. The grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. As we begin chapter 8, the first thing we see is This statement that Saul approved of Stephen's execution. It was a good thing what happened to Stephen. He was a blasphemer after all. He undercut the authority of the temple. He made null and void the traditions and laws of Moses. He was leading the people astray. He might rock the boat with the Romans. He deserved to die. It was a good thing. A good thing that should happen to others as well, others who acted like Stephen and believed like Stephen. That's what Saul thought. We'll see Stephen's death trigger something. Up to this point, persecution has been limited to the leaders in the church. In Acts 5, we see Peter and John beaten. Stephen is, of course, martyred in Acts 7, but something happens now. Stephen's death has set off this reaction, and now persecution is no no longer limited to the leaders of the church. It goes viral in Jerusalem, and no one is safe. The, The Sanhedrin viewed these followers of Jesus as an abhorrent movement. That needed to be stamped out and destroyed. And Saul is the one deputized by the high priest to carry this out. He's going to be the agent assigned to this task. And verse 2 tells us that that, uh, the day of Stephen's execution, there arose a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Verse 3 tells us Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Those are strong words. That, That word ravaging just brings to mind graphic imagery. He's laying waste to and devastating the church. He's forcibly entering people's homes Dragging out men and women, throwing them into prison until a sentence could be handed down. You know, as I was studying this, I was reminded of ISIS. You know, that militant Islamic group of extremists might seem like a hyperbolic statement, but I was reminded of them. They decimated churches and monasteries and Christian homes. They would... Publicly execute the Christians there in Iraq and Syria, and they would do so in front of a camera so that the world could see, all because of this belief that persecuting the church would help Islam to spread and grow. Now, Saul is obviously Jewish and not Muslim, but his motivations were the same. We're going to bring destruction and death to the church. We're going to stamp it out, and we're going to do so for the good of the nation and the purity of Judaism. If you think I'm being a bit hyperbolic here in my comparison, just listen to his own words that he will later write. This is from Acts 22. Paul says, I persecuted this way to the death binding and delivering to prison both men and women. I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. In Acts 26, before King Agrippa, he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when... They were put to death. I cast my vote against them. I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Those are Paul's words. One more, Galatians one thirteen. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism... How I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. He also says at the end of his life, he's writing a letter to Timothy, and he describes himself as basically the worst sinner he knows. He says, I am the foremost of sinners. Now that is a natural consequence of walking with Jesus and being filled with the Holy Spirit over the course of your life. The Spirit is going to pull back layers and reveal to you areas of darkness and sin. And the longer you walk with Jesus, the bigger the cross is going to become and the more you'll realize your need of grace. And that was true for Paul. But also with Paul, there were memories in his mind. Memories of terrible sins. Dragging people from their homes, executing men and women, hunting them from town to town in A raging fury. These are all sins that have been washed by the blood of Jesus. But they've not been erased from his memory. And these are the sins that the church in Jerusalem is now experiencing. We see the level of hatred on display in what they do with Stephen's body, which is nothing. They just leave it lying on the ground, unburied, exposed. This isn't... There's not... the, The humiliation and disrespect this communicates is not limited to that time. It would be just as disrespectful today. But in the first century, this was a... This was a an action that said something profound of their level of animosity they had towards this man. Now we're told that some devout men gather up Stephen's body and, and bury him, but they do so at great risk to themselves. But even in this, we see just how vicious these persecutions were. Well, let's, let's look at the effects of these persecutions. We need to ask the question, do they accomplish Saul's purposes? If the purpose is to stamp out the church, to eradicate it, are they successful? We see in verse 1 there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. That's verse 4. So the effect of this persecution is that the church scatters. People take off. Probably some with just the clothes on their back. Maybe they were able to fill a bag with a few possessions and some food and take off. But the church scatters and they do so quickly. They leave their home. They leave land. They leave possessions. They take their families and immigrate elsewhere. We're told in this passage that they are scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, but it's not only there. Later in Acts 11, Luke writes that those who were scattered because of the persecution traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. So to answer that question of, did Saul succeed? Well, he drove them from Jerusalem. He was very successful in driving them out of the city, but on the big scheme of things, his purposes failed. Outright, We have another example here of our God taking the sinful actions of wicked people and working them for His glory and the good of His people. This is something we will see over and over and over again in the Bible. Uh, the most famous one is, is probably the Joseph narrative, where Joseph says to his brothers, What you meant for evil, God meant for good. That same principle applies here You have the church comfortably nestled in Jerusalem. They probably wouldn't have left Jerusalem on their own. They're settled in. They've got down roots. They like the city. They have their life there. And then Saul scatters them. Up to this point, Jerusalem had been ground zero for Christianity. And you think, how is this going to grow if it never leaves the city? And Saul says, I got it, without knowing it. He provides the means for the Great Commission. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Okay, how are they going to get there? Saul is going to push them out. There's a memorable story from church history, and I don't have time to recount The entirety of it uh, involves two men in Oxford, England in the year 1555. Those two men are named Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. And they understood this idea that the more damage the enemies of the church inflict, the more they will simply grow the church. There's this famous moment in their lives Just prior to being burned at the stake. So they're they're in Oxford in the town square. A stake has been driven into the ground. They're tied to it. They're covered with uh, piles of um, wood and oil. And just before being burned at the stake, there's this moment where Hugh Latimer speaks to his friend and he says, Be of good cheer, Ridley, and play the man. For this day we shall light up by God's grace Such a candle in England, as I trust, will never be put out. That's an amazing statement. It was made by men who understood that whatever came, the Lord would either rescue them or he would give them the strength they needed to endure. So they knew they didn't need to rely on their own strength, and they also knew that God has a history of using persecutions to grow his church what he did in Jerusalem. It's what he did in England. It's what he's doing in places like China today. I'm sure you've heard that famous quote from Tertullian, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Tertullian is saying, you can kill us, you can cut us down, you can shed our blood, but it's only going to cause the gospel to spread further. You know, Tertullian was on to something when he made that statement. And, and it's in this word scattered. This word scattered is used twice in this text. And when we hear that the church is scattered, we might view it in a negative sense. You know how you can take a puzzle and you can scatter a puzzle and the puzzle is ruined. You can take a piece of pottery and smash the piece of pottery and scatter the pieces and It's ruined. Sheep might be scattered without a, sh- a, sh- a shepherd and lost. But that's not the way scattering is used here. The Greek word translated scattered is diasporao, and it is a closely associated with farming. This idea of something being scattered like seed. That's what farmers do. They have their seed, they go out, and they throw it, and they scatter it, and it goes into the ground and looks like it dies. But then what happens? A crop grows, and then comes the harvest. Well, in God's providence, Saul and his persecution is used to plant these gospel seeds all across the region. It is not his intention. It is the opposite of his intention, but it's what happens. And we're told that they were scattered about the region and they went about preaching the word. Now, we need to talk about that, that Greek word for, that is translated in English as preaching. Because for a lot of you sitting out there in the pews, the idea of preaching might not be appealing to you. The idea of standing in front of a crowd and Speaking in public, that's what the number one fear, right? So you may think, I can't do this. All right, they're scattered and they go about preaching the word. I'm not a preacher. John's the preacher. He does that. Well, you can absolutely do what is being described here. The word that has been translated as preaching is yuangalitzo. And preaching is not the best translation. A better translation of the original would be talked about or telling about. So they were scattered and talked about the word. They told people about the word. Everyone can do that. There's one commentator who translated this, and I love this. He translated this as gossiping. Gossiping in the the good sense. The people were scattered and they gossiped the gospel. Have you heard the good news about Jesus? Did you know that at the cross sins are forgiven? I need to fill you in on what's been happening in Jerusalem. Let me tell you where grace can be found. These are some examples of gossiping the gospel. And notice who does this. It's not the apostles. The apostles stay back in Jerusalem. We we aren't sure why they remain behind, but they do. The people doing this are the laity. Those are the ones who are doing this. This is grassroots. These are Christians who, they aren't the professional Christians who get paid to pray and study their Bibles. People just like you who have been scattered and gossip the gospel. From here, we see the church grow explosively, and it doesn't happen because of the leaders and the professionals. It happens through regular people in neighborhoods and markets and all areas of community life. Before we look at the second half of this passage and we see Philip in Samaria... I want to remind you of something and challenge you. You need to view yourself as seed scattered by the Lord. He has planted you where you are. So the house that you are going to go home to after church, the neighborhood that your house is located in or the street, wherever it is, The job you have, the access you have to other kids and their families. Let's say you have kids and your kids are friends with some other kids and because of that friendship you have access to parents. None of that is coincidence. None of that is accidental. God has planted you where you are. He's planted you there for a purpose. And so you need to recognize that and then ask yourself if I've been scattered, am I bearing fruit for Christ? Is there a crop? Will there be a harvest? Am I doing anything at all? Am I talking with those around me about the word? Am I gossiping the gospel? all important questions for us to ask ourselves. To know that our life counts. It is intentional. It has a purpose. Your job, as frustrating as it may be, your neighborhood or house, whatever you think of it, you've been put there for a reason. Stephen is killed Persecution follows. The church is scattered, forced out. And Luke describes one specifically who is is scattered and does this preaching. His name is Philip. Now, we've met Philip before. This is not Philip the apostle. This is one of the ones elected by the church to care for the Greek widows. And just as Stephen is the first martyr, Philip is the first missionary. And it's interesting where Philip goes, because we're told that he goes down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to Stephen. They saw him perform signs and miracles, and they believe, and there's much joy. Why go to Samaria? Well, we need to talk about Samaria and the Samaritans. Samaria, if you're looking at a map of Israel, it's this area of land north of Jerusalem. If, if, you, if you're looking at Jerusalem and you have the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River, if you were to draw a straight line, Samaria would be right in the middle of that line. Or that line would go right through the middle of Samaria, rather. But people didn't like to go through Samaria. Samaria. It was a straight shot. But instead, they would cross the Jordan, go around to the east, and completely detour that area. They did so because of the intense animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews. The Jews saw these Samaritans as half-breeds. People with lesser blood. They had intermarried with the Assyrians. Originally, it was the northern kingdom. The Assyrians came in in 722, wiped them out, took the people away. The people intermarry, and those who come back are seen to have tainted blood. It's kind of mongrel, half-breed type. Again, the funny thing is, not funny, but quite ironic, is that the text we read this morning... And Ezra shows that these high and mighty folks down in Jerusalem had done the exact same thing. They'd intermarried with people who served foreign gods. They were blind to that. They didn't see it. The Samaritans were lesser. So much so, uh, there's one Jewish rabbi who said, Let no man eat the bread of the Samaritans, for he who eats their bread is as he who eats swine's flesh. So don't go in their neighborhood, don't go in their town, don't eat their food. Also, we don't want them in heaven either. Send them to hell. There was a popular prayer in these days, Lord, do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. So stay away from them, don't eat their food, and we're going to actually pray against them. That's, that's the amount of hatred that is here. And I'm sure the Samaritans felt the same way about the Jews. It adds a lot of weight and color to Jesus' parable about the Good Samaritan. When, When the Samaritan is the hero of the story and the one who demonstrates how to love our neighbors. That's where Philip goes. He goes to this place. And we don't know why he goes there. You know, I'd love to think that he chose to go there, that he just remembered Jesus' words, you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And he's like, Samaria. Jesus said it. That's where I'm going to go. Maybe that's why he went. Maybe uh, persecution forced him to go there and that's where he landed in the fallout. We don't know. But whatever drove him there, he had a call order. Culturally. Ethnically. The, the idea of this Jew coming there and bringing a, a message and it being received. The, the world looking at this and thinking, alright, what's the likelihood of that happening? I mean, you'd say it's near impossible. And yet he went. There's a lesson here for us today. We, are, we live in a ethnically diverse country. Um, I'm grateful to God that the animosity and the hostility that existed between the Jews and Samaritans um, is not as bad in our country. And yet we are a country that has experienced racial tension in the past and over the past 10-12 years it seems like racial tension has strengthened or ramped back up. But in seeing Philip go to Samaria, we're reminded that we, too, are to go and to be among and to gossip the gospel with those who are different from us. People who are culturally different, ethnically different. Those differences can seem like barriers that would deter us and daunt us. But find encouragement. That if these Samaritans would receive a first century Jew, we can also make inroads in our communities that are culturally and ethnically different from our own. So Philip goes. He goes to Samaria and what does he do? Does Philip say, all right, I'm going to live among you and I'm going to adopt your practices and I'm going to blend in and become a part of your community? No, he doesn't do that. Does Philip go to Samaria and attempt to pursue racial reconciliation and say, I've come to apologize for the previous hurts that my people and my fathers have inflicted on you? I'm here to apologize for the griefs that my community has perpetrated on you as Samaritans. No, he doesn't do that either. What does Philip do? Verse 5. He went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. He goes to those who just like him are sinners in need of grace. And he goes to them and he points them to the greater Moses. He points them to the true Temple. You don't have to go to that temple in Jerusalem. He is the true temple. He is the high priest who has offered himself once for all as an atonement for sin. And he loved you, Samaritans. You're the hero in one of his parables. He died for you. He specifically told his disciples at his great, the last words he spoke before going to his father, where you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria. He has died for you. Believe and rest on him. That is the message that Philip brings. And we see the result of all this in verse 8. The result of the death of Stephen, the result of the persecution in Jerusalem, the result of the scattering of the people and the faithfulness of Philip to go into a hard cultural place and proclaim Christ. All of this, verse 8: so there was much joy in that city. Samaria was filled with joy. The seed of the gospel had been scattered and planted, and it bore fruit, and the fruit was joy of knowing Jesus Christ. And it's an amazing contrast, isn't it? Because you begin this passage with death, and men lamenting the murder of Stephen, and people being dragged from their homes and locked up, and fleeing Jerusalem, Saul ravaging the church. That's where it begins, but the passage ends with joy. You see, trouble in one city leading to joy in another. And I listened to Dr. Derek Thomas preach a sermon on this text and he warned his congregation. He said, be careful, my friends, when you pray. When you pray, make this a mission-minded church. Be careful. Because God's way of answering That, in order to bring joy to one city, might be to bring trouble to your own. Are you ready for that? There's also something else here in this joy we see. It is a microcosm of the joy that is coming. That now in this life we experience pain and suffering, but joy is coming. 2 Corinthians 1. Four, 17 the same man who was ravaging the church wrote this for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal So we think about Stephen and Philip and the countless saints who went out and gossiped the gospel. And and we think about the the promptings the Holy Spirit brings to us in our own community. And we remember this joy that comes at the end. We remember those words of C.T. Studd. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray. Father God, as Christians, we are those who are called to die. We are called to take up our cross and to follow Jesus. He tells us in John 12 that unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it cannot bear fruit. Father, would we be reminded that nothing in this world happens on accident? Our our station in life where you have placed us, it is not an accident. Our job, our house our friends, our community, everything. Father, would you use us mightily to go into hard places, different places, and see all as sinners in need of grace and out of a hope that they who might look and talk and live somewhat differently than we live, that they too would be made brothers and sisters. In Jesus. We ask this all in his most holy and precious name. Amen.